Yay old man. Welcome to another episode of Yay, Nay or Meh, presented by the Raw Footage Podcast. I am your host, Colin Gaisley, coming to you from Bath in the southwest of England. And it is blisteringly hot in my fourth story room slash recording studio. Supposedly, today is going to be the hottest day on record here in the UK. Because man-made climate change is not a thing, is it, petrol companies? Even with a fan on, it is too hot in here, and I can't have the fan on while I'm recording, so I am sweating buckets here. In order to hydrate, I have bottles of squash up here. I mean, yes, I'm in my 40s, but I still drink bottles of squash. And last time I had a mouthful of squash, it was actually warm. But nevertheless, I am here to record about some movies. I have two cinematic releases for you. The family-friendly live-action film Just in Time for the Summer Holidays, The Railway Children Return. And we also have the Oscar-submitted film from Spain this year, The Good Boss. And on streaming platforms, I have a couple of micro-budget lesbian dramas which have been released onto streaming platforms, Who Am I Now and The Sympathy Card. And I also got around to the movie-released film Pleasure, which caused waves at the Sundance Film Festival a couple of years ago. And it's just as well I waited a couple of weeks after its release onto movie because it has been released in some streaming platforms. So that was handy. So five films in total in this particular episode, and let's just get through this so I can turn the fan back on for whatever limited comfort that brings. Big screen. The Railway Children Return is a family-friendly live-action film directed by Morgan Matthews who is almost exclusively a documentarian. He has won BAFTAs for his documentaries The Fallen and 771 Day in London, and he's also been nominated for BAFTAs for his documentaries Taxidermy Stuff the World, Scenes from a Teenage Killing, and Beautiful Young Minds which was a documentary dealing with autistic teenagers as they were competing in a mathematical Olympiad. And that documentary, Beautiful Young Mind, was eventually adapted into a narrative feature film, also directed by Morgan Matthews, which here in the UK was entitled X Plus Y, and in the States was released as A Brilliant Young Mind. It was a decent film starring Asa Butterfield, Rafe Spall and Sally Hawkins, which I did like until right at the end of the movie, because it was a sensitive portrayal of autism, 
until the final moments, the final ideas that the film leaves you with, which completely went against the ethos of the rest of the film, as far as I was concerned. So I mostly recommend X plus Y, but I was really, really pissed off by the ending. But anyway, until now, that has been Morgan Matthews' only narrative feature. And Morgan Matthews actually hasn't made a film himself for quite some time. I mean, he's a producer on many films, including the Netflix documentary Hunt for the Crypto King. But Morgan Matthews has not made a film himself since 2017, when he made the documentary Williams, about the Williams F1 team. And now... He's made another narrative feature, and it's a rather unusual choice to make for this kind of filmmaker. This is a sequel many decades down the line from The Railway Children. Specifically, the 1970 Lionel Jeffries adaptation of E. Nesbitt's novel. This latest version has been written by Daniel Brocklehurst, a mainstay of British television, who's been involved in such things as Clocking Off, Shameless, and Brassic, as well as all those Harlan Coburn adaptations that Netflix has been churning out. He's been involved in a lot of those as well. He is a very, very big name in British television, but he doesn't often make films, as Daniel Brocklehurst writes the script for the Railway Children Return, which is a direct sequel and continuation to Lionel Jeffrey's 1970 film, in so much as that Jenny Agatha reprises her role from 1970 as Bobby, the eldest of the Railway Children, who is now middle-aged. I mean, the original Railway Children took place in, I think it was 1908, and this takes place in 1944, in the same village. And this time, the railway children are evacuees from the Second World War who have come from Salford and are being taken in by Jenny Agatha and her family. And Sheridan Smith has a 12, 13-year-old son of her own, played by Austin Haynes. So we've gone from a teenage Jenny Agatha waving her red bloomers to she's a grandmother now. But uh, anyway, the... Evacuees, which end up living with Jenny Agatha and Sheridan Smith, are three siblings from Salford. The eldest, Bo Gadson, is the no-nonsense de facto mother for her much younger siblings, Eden Hamilton and Zach Cudby. But they are instantly embraced warmly by Jenny Agatha, Sheridan Smith and Austin Haynes, and instantly become part of the family and start settling into the quiet rural life. In order to help with the war effort, despite the fact they're, you know, kids, they're constantly on the lookout for spies, for Germans. And they think they found one when they uncover a boy hiding out in the train yard. This black American boy, played by Kenneth Akins, is a GI at a nearby American army base, but he is hiding out. 
he tells these somewhat gullible teenagers, I'm on a secret mission. Yeah, I'm on a secret mission. Uh, so yeah, don't tell anybody that I'm here. So you know, he's clearly deserted and he looks suspiciously young to be in the army. So can these new railway children keep the secret of this young black man who's hiding out? And will they come to terms with grief and loss that war provides? So when I started seeing trailers for the Railway Children Return, I thought that having this runaway that they come across be a black American GI, it was just, okay, it's 2021, 2022, colorblind casting, inclusive casting, that's the kind of thing you expect nowadays. And yes, indeed, there is a little bit of that in the Railway Children Return, in one scene, there is a post office messenger who rides up on his bicycle and hands over a telegram. And this is the Second World War, so a telegram is never good news. And that very small role, who's in like 30 seconds of this film, was played by an actor with Down syndrome. So, yeah, there is some inclusivity. But the fact that Kenneth Akins is black. American and looks suspiciously young to be in the army is actually the entire point of the film. This film ends up being about racism. And I'm actually kind of impressed that it is. This is a very, very wholesome, very, very family friendly film with adventure and secrets and you know, gangs getting up together. I mean, there's quite a bit of whistle down the wind in this. A group of kids keeping somebody hidden, and eventually everybody in the town you know, all bands together, all the kids in the town all band together, and there are direct parallels to the original Railway Children, you know, with trying to stop a train and somebody standing directly in front of a train in order to try and stop it and trying to get the attention of one specific person on the train who maybe possibly could solve all their problems. But honestly, there's not as much of that as I feared there might be. I mean, yes, if you know the original Railroad Children, you can see, oh yeah, I see what they've done there. There's, there's a reference to the 1970 film. But there's not actually a lot of that. And, and actually, Jenny Agatha is not in very much of this film, all things considered. So... Yeah, you don't need to watch the original Railway Children of the 1970 version, but, you know, it helps. I mean, as I said in the last episode, I wasn't a huge fan of the 1970 Railway Children, but regardless, there are parallels there if you know where to look for them, but they are not overpowering, they are not overwhelming. And it's one entire story, not the very episodic narrative that we had in 1970, because it's all about this young black boy Kenneth Akins and trying to hide him and working out why he's trying to hide. I mean, there's a very uh, notable, well, actually, there's a couple of notable sequences where these black GIs, these black American soldiers, are in this Yorkshire pub and are teaching Negro spirituals to the white women. 
and then the MPs come in and start beating all the black soldiers up, people who are supposed to be on their same side. And then later in the film, there's a black GI who is walking hand in hand down this Yorkshire village street with a white girl, and the MPs come up and just beat the shit out of the black American soldier. Again, somebody who's supposed to be on their own side. So we see and we observe how the black soldiers are treated by their own colleagues, by their own side, and that becomes the focus of the film. What I'm about to do is a mild spoiler, but I've kind of already given it away, but it's such an excellent line that I think it sums up the entire movie. Towards the end of the film, this black American soldier, Kenneth Akins, says, I may be 14, but I ain't no boy. And that just summed everything up. And I was surprised at how intelligent this film ended up being. Because, yes, it is a wholesome, family-friendly, live-action version. Little bits of nostalgia for the adults, if you know where to look for them. But a generally wholesome, approachable film. But there's just enough in this film that if you do have a young child, I don't know, probably six, seven, eight years old, this film has the potential to start conversations about racism. But it's not so much a part of the film that it feels preachy at any point. Well, all right, it's a little preachy, but it's not as preachy as it certainly could have been. So I think the balance is absolutely right. I think this film is saying important things. It is raising important questions, which you can have proper discussions with young children about. And it's also wholesome, family-friendly entertainment. I mean, most of this film you could easily classify as a U. But, I mean, it is a PG. For understandable reasons. I mean, for one thing, dangerous behaviour. I mean, like I said, there is a character who steps in front of a steam train. And also racism theme is what they list on the BBFC website. The worst that the black characters ever get called is boy. Which, if you don't know the context, I think you, you might be able to get away with. But yeah, it, it's generally acceptable for all. But just enough stuff in there to say this might possibly be able to start a conversation and that i think is definitely valuable we are living in a world in a society in a culture which is increasingly divided along political along social along racial lines so any film which starts a conversation saying we need to be more tolerant is a good thing and yeah, this is, I mean, I keep coming back to the word, but it's the perfect term. This is wholesome. This is a wholesome movie. And on those terms, I did enjoy it. So yeah, for me, The Railway Children Return, available currently in cinemas, is a very family-friendly and potentially important film. And for me, it is a very high 
Ma. The other cinematic release I want to talk about this week is one I've already seen earlier in the year through Extra Legal Means, because this film ended up on the 15-film long list for International Feature Oscar. And it has been released this week, so the review I recorded a couple of months ago is now ready to be released. And here are my thoughts on the Spanish film, The Good Boss. Archive start. It's the middle of March, and I'm gradually ticking off all the films I need to see in order to include them in my Oscar deliberations. And one of the ones I definitely need to tick off the list is the Spanish international film entry, The Good Boss, which did end up on the 15 film long list. And rather surprisingly ended up on the 15 film long list because I think the majority of people's assumption was that the Spanish entry to this year's international feature race would be Parallel Mothers by Pedro Almodovar. Each country has the opportunity to submit one film to the Oscars. And with such a big name as Pedro Almodovar, it would be assumed that Parallel Mothers would get that distinction, particularly since Parallel Mothers got two Oscar nominations in the broader ceremony for Penelope Cruz as Best Actress and for Best Original Score. So... A name like Almodovar starring Penelope Cruz, it seemed like a shoo-in. But, as it turned out, Spain submitted this film, The Good Boss, instead. It does have a recognisable star in it. It stars Javier Bardem, Oscar nominee for Best Actor this year. And it's from a director with a little bit of background. It's directed by Fernando Leon de Aranoa, who has been making films in Spain since the late 90s, and a few of them have made international distribution. His biggest film to this point is probably a film in 2017, which is sometimes known as Escobar and sometimes known as Loving Pablo, starring Javier Bardem and Penelope Cruz. I always like it when married couples work together, but you know, playing Pablo Escobar and the journalist who to some degree, helped his rise to power and fame and notoriety. But that's probably the biggest internationally known film from Fernando Leon de Aranoa until this point. And El Buen Patron, The Good Boss, did actually do very well at the Spanish Goya Awards. It won six Goya Awards in total including Best Actor for Javier Bardem, and it won Best Film and Best Director over Parallel Mothers and Pedro Almodovar. So, clearly domestically in Spain, The Good Boss was the bigger film, and that's the one they chose to submit. Which I think says a lot about what is successful in domestic settings and what is successful in international settings. This film is a little bit of a comedy, a little bit of a farce, also has some social commentary to it. And it stars Javier Bardem as the owner of a factory that makes scales, that makes balances. 
and one of his watchwords is that everything needs to be in balance. And he presents himself as a very affable, very friendly, you know, all my employees are like family to me, I am a good person. And this public front is so good that he is on the shortlist for an award handed out by the local government for the best local business in the area. And this is an award he is desperate to win and desperate to put on a good face for the selection committee, which is scheduled to make a tour of his factory any day now. But wouldn't you know it, a string of problems crop up the week before this inspection is supposed to take place. A recently laid off worker, played by Oscar de la Fuente, has started camping out across the road from the factory with a bullhorn shouting protest, you know, why did you fire me? Give me my job back. And he's bringing his kids along with him, you know, making a public nuisance, a public disturbance. The son of one of his employees has been caught up in a racially motivated attack, kicking the shit out of a group of Arabs in the local area. And he decides, you know, I may as well intervene on my employee's behalf. His right-hand man, who he has known since they were both kids together, played by Manolo Solo, is going through a messy separation from his wife, and his work is really, really starting to suffer. And one of the new interns who he has been casually flirting with, the very beautiful, very statuesque, Almudena Amor attracts his attention and flirtation starts, but there's more to that than meets the eye. So all of these things are happening all at once, the same week that this big inspection is going on for this big prestigious award, which Javier Bardem desperately, desperately wants, because he is a good boss, and he wants everybody to know he's a good boss. And yeah, I was very surprised when The Good Boss was submitted by Spain to the International Feature Oscar over Almodovar's Parallel Mothers. Almodovar has much more of a higher profile. I mean, he's an Oscar winner, for God's sake, and Fernando Leon de Aranoa doesn't have a huge international profile. But, Percy speaking, I actually like The Good Boss over Parallel Mothers. I mean, when I reviewed Parallel Mothers recently, I said it was not one of Almodovar's best. And the things that are raised in The Good Boss and the things that are presented to us in The Good Boss, I think have some very powerful statements to make. I think this is a very subtle, very understated takedown, an absolute evisceration of the patriarchy. Javier Bardem is excellent. I think he's much better acting in this than he was in Being the Ricardos, which he actually got the Oscar nomination for. He is a man whose self-image is such that he believes he is a good boss. He believes he is a good man. Yet he isn't. I mean, he is casually dismissive of this laid-off worker who's protesting across the street. He 
interferes in his psychic Manolo Solo's life. You know, actually talks to Manolo Solo's wife, saying, "You know, take him back for the sake of my business." I mean, everything in his world revolves around his business and this award. Anything which helps me get this award, I will do. So he interferes in Manolo Solo's life and saying, you know, yes, just get over it. I mean, let me take you to a strip club or something. I mean, it might even be a brothel. There's, there's talk of upstairs rooms. But it's a place called Club Paradise with lots of scantily clad Ukrainian women in it. And this is the way that Javier Bardem thinks Manolo Solo can get over his wife. Yet the fact that Manolo Silo himself has been having an affair, or at least was having an affair, means absolutely nothing to him. I mean, it is a man's prerogative to sleep around. And if the woman does it, then that's cause for concern. He has such a, a level of double standards, including the fact that he is perfectly willing to sleep with his interns, including this statuesque woman, Almudena Amor. It is noticeable that all the interns we see who work for this company, and we see a fair number of them, about half a dozen of them, I think, all of them are beautiful women. And all of them live in apartments near to the factory, which are owned by Javier Bardem. So the fact he is sleeping with this latest intern, or in the process of sleeping with this latest intern as this inspection is due, doesn't seem to be much of a surprise. This is basically the status quo, and he doesn't see anything wrong with this. And this is what the patriarchy does. It allows for male entitlement. It allows for male privilege. There's stuff in the relationship between Javier Bardem and Manolo Silo. I mean, both of their fathers worked at this factory in the same roles that they now work. I mean, they've basically inherited their father's jobs. And they've known each other since they were children. And some of the discussions which are had by Javier Bardem and Manolo Solo indicates that Javier Bardem has been a privileged, entitled prick since he was a kid. And it hasn't changed. I mean, nothing's ever been challenged for him. He inherited the family factory and he sees himself as a man of integrity, a man of balance, a man of justice. I mean, there's an advertising campaign which revolves around the scales of justice, which is complete bullshit because he's always tipping the scales in his favour, and yet he presents this balanced viewpoint to the world. He also gets one of his ageing employees to come round on a Sunday and fix his swimming pool. I mean, this is an old guy who probably should be long retired, yet he's still working in the factory and still coming round to his boss's palatial mansion to fix his swimming pool on a Sunday. And this seems perfectly reasonable to Javier Bardem. I mean, he, he's the epitome of entitlement. He's the epitome of the kind of male privilege which exists in the world, and we are just led to observe this. I mean, Fernando Leon de Aranoa, as writer and director, doesn't shove any of these ideas or any of these discussions down our throats. He just puts them there for us to observe, and we can observe them. We can see what Javier Bardem is, what he is doing. We can see 
all the little things which show just how privileged and entitled he is and how he brandishes that privilege and that entitlement and how occasionally it backfires on him and things go far too far in certain circumstances. He's out of his depth in a couple of places, but he does have a little bit of comeuppance by the end. But I think the point of this film is this kind of thing will go on and does go on. And it's fascinating seeing the start of the film where Javier Bardem is making this speech to all his employers. Yeah, we are up for this award. I feel you are all my family. We are such a, a family at Blanco Basquelos. I mean, white scales. I think it's no mistake that his name is White because that's how he sees himself. And by the end, I mean, it, it's a little bit mirrored by the end when we have all the stuff which is being presented to the world for the sake of this award. And yeah, it, it's very subtle it's very understated but it does have a very specific point to make and i did like it and i do like it more than i liked almodovar's parallel mothers at time of recording it doesn't look like there's an official release date for the good boss here in the uk i assume at some point there will be some form of release for the good boss and when it does come out if it does come out i do recommend it because I think Harvey Bardem is excellent, and the film as a whole is a subtle indictment of male entitlement and privilege. And I do think it's worth watching. So for me, The Good Boss is a pretty high meh. Archive finish. I do genuinely prefer this film, The Good Boss, to Almodovar's Parallel Mothers. And... I guess Spain did do something right, because out of the 92 films that got submitted to the International Feature Oscar this year, this film was one of the 15 long-listed films. But I can't help feeling that if an Almodovar film had been on the list, it might well have got nominated, because Almodovar is a recognised commodity, and the people in the Academy who are voting for these things might have gone for Parallel Mothers anyway. I mean, like I said, they gave Almodovar's film two Oscar nominations as is. But yeah, I do actually prefer The Good Boss. It is definitely a film about the patriarchy. It is a film about the class divide. In places, it comes across as quite a bit of a farce. The ending, I think, is perfectly pitched and rather bittersweet, with Javier Bardem realising potentially he's gone too far. You know, he was so desperate to get this award, maybe he's gone too far, but he can't help himself. He's going to remain basically the same anyway. And, yeah, it's it's got lots of stuff to it. I don't think I would have given it an Oscar nomination in my Oscar preview show I didn't but it was certainly worthy of an honourable mention so yeah The Good Boss is an intriguing little film a nice comedy of manners almost and for me if you can still find it in the cinema it is a rock solid art house meh home movies who am I now 
is a micro-budget queer film, which is the debut feature film from writer-director Louise E. Lachey, who actually, according to IMDb at least, has another film in production, a horror movie set in the Alaskan wilderness, which happens to have the two leads of this film as part of its ensemble cast. So this definitely seems to be one of those situations where a group of friends just got together and made a movie. And in a lot of ways, this is a rather straightforward movie, or at least a straightforward lesbian movie, in which two women, Joanna Gaskell and Alicia C. Snee, meet up at a bar. They have mutual friends in common, and they hang out for the first time, and an instant spark of attraction forms between these two women, which on both sides is rather unexpected. Joanna Gaskell is closeted and repressed, but she is comfortable. She knows she's a lesbian, she just hasn't ever acted on it, and for the first time she might want to. But she is a woman who is almost always wearing a flannel shirt and jeans, so as somebody says at one point, you weren't trying very hard to hide the fact you were gay, were you? But anyway, Joanna Gaskell hasn't ever acted on her urges, but is comfortable with it. Whereas Alicia C. Snee is absolutely rocked to her foundations by the fact she is suddenly attracted to this woman. What does this mean to me? What does this mean to my father? What does this mean to our status? I cannot possibly be gay. I must not be gay. So the fact that Alicia C. Snee is so determined not to be gay rather throws a spanner in this tale of first romance. So can Alicia C. Snee become comfortable with her sexuality? Can Joanna Gaskell be more open about her sexuality? And can this relationship actually work? There are several things you need to know about this movie, Who Am I Now? There are several caveats that need to be put in place. This is a micro, micro budget movie. The production values are incredibly low. The cinematography is subpar. The sound mixing is subpar. They clearly didn't have enough money to hire proper extras. So even these scenes in the bar where they all hang out in, there's a, f- a couple of desultory people. We mean, presumably just friends of the cast and crew. Probably even the crew is in these scenes. It's on a very, very small scale. Which isn't in and of itself a problem. But when you combine it with the fact that these are supposed to be college students, and even if we accept that you know these are college students, all of whom have other jobs, so maybe they're in master's programs probably, even given that, everybody is at least a decade older than they would anticipate being if they were in college. And even if we 
go more specifically into a queer movie or a lesbian movie, then this film is somewhat problematic as well. This kind of coming out story, or actually it's a more specific subgenre of coming out to yourself and being so desperately afraid of coming out, of being lesbian. This seems like such an archaic thing to do. I mean, this seems 30 or 40 years out of date. I mean, it's not too far removed from Desert Hearts, and that was a film that was made in the 80s and set in the 50s. This is a film which was made and set in the 2020s, and yet we have people who are catastrophically afraid of coming out. Even to the extent, I mean, like I said, Joanna Gaskell is constantly wearing flannel shirts, so when she finally screws up the courage and says to her best friend, Alethea Sholomenko, I'm gay, Alethea Sholomenko basically just says, well, duh. But she was so terrified of coming out to her best friend, and those kinds of narrative, yes, I'm sure they do go on in the modern day, particularly in conservative regions, but this doesn't seem to be a particularly conservative region. It was made in Canada. I mean, I'm assuming that Canada is relatively more liberal than, say, the southern United States, but this kind of devastation that, you know, oh no, I'm gay, what do I do now? I mean, there's one very, very uncomfortable scene where Alicia C. Snee is so determined not to be gay that she actually initiates some heterosexual sex, and it's very, very uncomfortable on both participants' part. I mean, yes, the guy is you know emotionally mature enough to realize, hang on, there's something going on here. But you know, Alicia C. C. is so insistent that he goes through with this, and you know, both of them kind of regret it instantly. But yeah, it's very, very uncomfortable seeing these things take place, and particularly when it's in the modern day, and that kind of stuff just doesn't need to happen anymore. This feels very, very old-fashioned. So yeah, I mean, this is what happens when you have a reasonably open distribution platform. Basically, these are a group of people who just got together and decided to make a film. It may as well have been shot on a camcorder. The production values are that low. The acting isn't great, and even if it was great, everybody's at least a decade too old for the characters they're playing. And yet, it is available for purchase on streaming platforms here in the UK. And honestly, I'm not sure it's worth it. It frustrates me when I have to say this, I mean, because I do love seeking out these micro-budget films. I do love uncovering these hidden gems and, and trying to persuade people, no, look, yes, this might be you know, effectively a straight-to-video movie, or you know, the modern equivalent of a straight-to-video movie, but it's actually good. I mean, I like doing that. I like spreading that. But this is not one of those cases. It's just not worth it. So, unfortunately, it pains me to say this, but who am I now ends up being a nay. P. 
particularly because released at roughly the same time on streaming platforms is another lesbian movie called The Sympathy Card. Written and directed by Brendan Boogie, and I severely doubt that's his real name, but he has one feature film in his past called Sundown, which is apparently an indie drama about dementia, which you can find on Amazon. But this one, The Sympathy Card, was made in 2019 and has dribbled out onto streaming platforms here in the UK. It tells the story of a very awkward lesbian played by Nika Azel Papas, who, at the start of the film, connects to a rather butch lesbian played by the trans man PTJ Gibson, who is playing a cis lesbian, and he was also one of the producers of this film, so if he's okay with playing a cis woman, then I guess we should be as well. But anyway, Nika Azel Papas connects with PTJ Gibson, and they form a friendship, they form a connection, they form a bond. But PTJ Gibson is a smoker. And all throughout their courtship, PTJ Gibson is coughing. And as they are getting married, he's even having to use an oxygen tank on their wedding day. And eventually it is confirmed that PTJ Gibson has rather severe lung cancer. Devastated by this news and knowing that in all likelihood PTJ Gibson is not long for this world, he, well, the character is she, persuades her wife, look, I'm not going to be here very much longer and you are so awkward when it comes to dating that I need you to start looking for somebody now for after I'm gone. I will help you hook up with your next partner whilst I'm still alive. Nika Azel Papas is very, very reluctant to do this. She doesn't want to abandon her dying wife, but she goes along with it and eventually connects to a local florist played by Lauren Neal. So can the relationship between Lauren Neal and Nika Azel Papas continue in this rather awkward and unusual situation of Nika Azel Papas's wife still being alive. So, once again, The Sympathy Card is a micro-micro-budget film. I mean, it just dribbled out onto stream platforms. I stumbled across it quite by chance. And this is the thing I'm always looking for. This is one of those micro-budget small films which is actually really really good i loved this film it is so adorable it is so earnest the interactions between nika azel papas and pcj gibson are very well handled even the interactions between nika azel papas and lauren neal are well done as well she has chemistry with both her wife and her potential new partner once you know her wife's dead I'm going to kind of describe the opening sequence of this one because I think it 
says everything you need to know about this film. We open on Nika Azel Papas at the side of a soccer pitch. She is talking to a woman who's also on the sidelines of this soccer pitch, you know, because you know, I'm not really into sports, but I think this is a good way to meet lesbians, and you know, this is a lesbian soccer team. So, hey, uh, hello, I'm a lesbian, and do you want to maybe hang out, say to this woman on the sidelines? And the woman on the sidelines say, uh, actually, no, I'm here with my kids, I'm, I'm not gay. So that becomes very awkward, and it becomes even more awkward the more that Nika Azel Papas talks. Even when she knows that this is a straight woman she's talking to, she makes it even more awkward than it needs to be. Meanwhile, on the pitch, PTJ Gibson is playing soccer in a very kind of butch way, and she's also smoking as she is playing soccer. And she is very violent. She goes in with crunching tackles all over the place. She's kind of a bull in a china shop. She's got a couple of teammates who are very tall and very statuesque, to the extent that when later in the film the Amazons are brought up, you know exactly who they're talking about. But eventually Nika Azalpapas gets on the pitch because PCJ Gibson has tackled somebody so bad they need to be replaced. And Nika Azalpapas manages to break PCJ Gibson's nose twice. And thinking, oh, well, I've, I've blown this, she tries to skulk off and says, look, I'm going to go home, I'm going to clean myself up, and you are going to come to my house about 7pm with flowers. Because you give flowers on a first date. And Nika Azalpapa says, okay, I'm in here. And then we go into a kind of a three-minute montage, which takes this relationship from this first meet-cute of basically Nikrizel Papas head-butting PTJ Gibson repeatedly. And part of this montage is repeatedly going to have flowers. It becomes their thing. You know, every time they go for a date, Nikrizel Papas brings flowers. So when later in the film she hooks up with the florist, it makes sense. I mean, because you know, she's going all out on all these your missions to try and find somebody to date, where all the time she's having lovely conversations with the girl behind the florist counter because she's always buying flowers. And PTJ Gibson is always coughing, even immediately after he slash she proposes to Nikrazel Papas, he slash she is coughing. And as I said, as they're getting married, he slash she has to have a oxygen tank. And basically everything you need to know about the rest of the film is set up in this three-minute montage at the beginning of the film. It is established very well, all the things which are happening in the rest of the film. Certain elements of this montage are even flashed back to, like eventually we do go back and see the first date between these two people and see the connection that is being formed. One of these flashbacks is put into a slightly different context when we see the full scene play out, because you start to realise there's elements of kink which are being brought into this relationship. And kink in a very positive, very open, very sympathetic way. And that's not the only kink aspect in this film. There are multiple places where sensitive portrayals of kink or uh, you know, unusual sexualities and relationships 
are explored and are developed. So, yeah, it, it's well handled. I believe the chemistry. I like the yeah, elements of kink, which are subtly and gradually entered into it. And it's just so damn adorable. Nika Zel Papas is very, very awkward. She's kind of introverted. A repeated mantra is, tell me what to do, which, you know, goes into the whole kink thing as well. And it's just so adorable the way she tries to navigate the world and navigate this unusual situation that her wife has put her in. She doesn't want to do this, but her wife wants her to, so she will do it. And the elements of melancholy which get brought into this scenario are also really well handled, I think. I mean, in certain places, there's genuine poignancy. PCJ Gibson has reasons why he slash she is doing what they're doing. Look, it's really complicated because the performer identifies as male but the character is female so i'm just going to go with he slash she and hope that's okay but anyway when pc j gibson talks about the reasons why he is doing this and why he is sending his wife out in order to do this it's actually got some genuine poignancy to it and yeah it's got a little bit of the melancholy it's got you know the awkward humor it's got a little bit of farce to it. It's got some ironic humour. It's got some cultural humour. I mean, stuff that you know, the lesbian community, for want of a better term, gets up to. The things that they accept, the things they don't accept, the ways they go about things. There's some satire about you know being a lesbian in America today. I mean, this was shot in Massachusetts, around the Boston area. And yeah, it's it's adorable. Yes, it's cheap. I mean, to the extent, I mean, there's one scene which has absolutely terrible ADR, where you have to re-record the voice. I mean, in that particular scene, they were outside, so I'm presuming there was enough background noise that they needed to go back and re-record the dialogue, and they did not do a good job of ADR. So yes, it's cheap. Yes, it's low-key, but it's also very, very entertaining and very, very sweet. I really like this. This is the kind of gem that I do like uncovering. It would be so easy to overlook this film, The Sympathy Card, because it's just dribbled out onto streaming platforms three years after it was actually produced. But it's very, very good. And if you are in the mood for something LGBTQ plus IA, however you want to do it, and low budget and low key, then you can do a hell of a lot worse than the sympathy card, which I really, really liked. So for me, the sympathy card available through streaming platforms is a yay. And next we have the movie released film Pleasure. This premiered at the 2021 Sundance Film Festival, and it is the debut feature-length film for Swedish director Ninja Thyberg, who has many shorts in her past, including a short which has been expanded into this feature-length film, Pleasure. And 18 months after it premiered at Sundance, 
we have this film released onto movie.com. It often takes a little bit of time when you have something as sexually frank as pleasure is, because this is all about the porn industry. Where a Swedish girl, played by Sofia Capel, goes to Los Angeles in order to become the next porn star. She is determined that she is going to be famous, successful. She will do absolutely anything in order to get to the top and get the best porn star manager in the world. A real-life guy called Mark Spiegler playing himself. And with the exception of Sophia Capel, every single other member of the cast of this film is an actual porn star or in the porn industry. And this is a frank exploration of ambition and trying for success. And also having a lot of sex. And that's kind of the root of what this film is. It's a kind of film we have seen before. You know, the price of ambition. Scratching and clawing your way to the top. Doing anything you need to do in order to be the best. It doesn't matter who you hurt. It doesn't matter who you clamber over in order to do it. You will be the best. And that's basically the narrative we have here. Except... It happens to be in the porn industry, and we don't actually see a great deal of explicit stuff. I mean, yes, there are a couple of erect cocks on screen, but there's a lot more graphic material in other things. I mean, a couple of examples that off the top of my head, I mean, Bad Luck Banging or Looney Porn was a lot more explicit than this, and the Danish film from a couple of years ago, Neon Heart, was a lot more explicit than this. Oh, and yeah, and another Danish film starring the same actress, Holiday. If you go into this film expecting actual porn or actual penetration, that's not what you're going to get. There are a couple of erect cocks on screen and somebody fillets a dildo, and that's about as far as it goes. But we do get to see a lot of nudity. We do get to see you know, behind the scenes of the porn industry. And it's fascinating seeing all these porn stars kind of out of character, or at least most of them are, or seem to be. I mean, the main friend, quote-unquote, who Sophia Capel spends time with is an actress who is credited on the film as Revika Ann Roosler. But her stage name, her porn name, is Zelda Morrison. She is the only one, or one of very, very few of the cast of this film, who are using their real name rather than their porn name. I mean, Zelda Morrison... I mean, look, I'm going to be open about this. I've watched a lot of porn in my day, so I'm familiar with a lot of people in this film. And I am familiar with Zelda Morrison. And I do like her. She has a cheeky sense of humor or she seems to be in the scenes she's been in and she has much more of a girl next door look than you know the drop dead gorgeous bombshell which honestly speaking is more my thing anyway but yeah zelda morrison i always liked and 
I like the fact that she's in this film, and the first time we see her, she's coming into the bathroom. I mean, she's one of the models who is sharing this house that Sophia Capel is staying in, and she's coming into the bathroom. And they made very, very sure to have the least glamorous first appearance of Revika Roosler slash Zelda Morrison in this movie as they possibly can. Doesn't have any makeup on, it's got bags under eyes, all puffy, all freckly, everything. Not the glamorous person that you anticipate being. And yet that is the first place we see her. I mean, it's all about the mechanics. I mean, this is a job. It's a job unlike many others but in some ways this is very much like other jobs there is the glamorous side and there is also the mechanic side i mean you getting into it and looking all hot and sexy and glamorous and then stop right change positions we need to do a different angle on that start again i mean it's just very mechanical very unsexy i mean this is a business and in order to get to the top of the business, you need to stab people in the back. And eventually, inevitably, we have a situation where Sophia Capel has to stab her best friend, Zelda Morrison slash Revika Roosler, in the back. She has seen some rather unsavoury things go on between Zelda Morrison and a male porn star and doesn't back up her friend when she complains. Because, you know, I keep your head down, get this scene over with, I can become a Spiegler girl. I can, you know, get the best manager in the business and I'll be set for life. So she stabs her friend in the back. And I find it really, really interesting that that male porn star, who is a misogynist prick and borderline abusive to his co-stars, is played by a performer who at the time was going by Lance Hart. In between this film being shot and today, Lance Hart has started transitioning and is currently performing as Lucy Hart. And yet in the film, that character is definitively evil and arguably abusive. And yet it is played by somebody who has since transitioned. I mean, there's lots of little details like that. I mean... Seeing people behind the scenes, I mean, it seems to be one of those things where their natural personalities come through. Like one of the other models in the house is the older, you know, MILF performer, Dana de Armand, who is, I mean, this might sound like a weird thing to say, but one of the funniest porn stars out there is Dana de Armand. If you want some deadpan, wry humour, She's the person you go to. And she is a little bit older than the other girls in the house, so it's her birthday and they have a cake saying, Happy Birthday, Grandma. There's another performer who goes by the odd stage name of Small Hands, and he specialises in very rough BDSM scenes. And that is indeed how we have it, with another porn star and porn director playing herself, Aidan Starr. I mean, eventually, Sophia Capel agrees to do some, you know, rough stuff. So she goes to this female director, Aidan Starr, and performs with this male performer, Small Hands. And it's a reasonably good experience. I mean, at every point she is made comfortable, you know, things are made clear. 
You can stop anytime you want. You, we want you safe. We want you comfortable. We want you happy. Everything goes well, including the fact that it seems to me that Small Hands, this guy who specialises in the rougher end of the porn spectrum, he's tattooed over the entirety of his top half. The top half of his torso is basically covered in tattoos. He looks like a badass. But he comes across in this form as a bit of a dork, which I find rather adorable. There's a, a lengthy conversation between Small Hands and Sophie Capel about a mobile game he's been playing. And that feels like something that Small Hands would actually do. It feels like director Ninja Thyberg, you know, asked, you, yeah, what would you actually do? And this is what they would actually do. I mean, Aiden Starr directed a scene as she would direct a scene. And it is a bondage scene. And Sophie Capel is happy. So you think, okay, this is my niche. I can do this. So she goes to another rough scene, this time directed by a man. And the man is played by the porn star Derek Pierce. Not playing himself, but I'm pretty sure that some of the stuff that goes on in this scene is stuff that has actually happened in Derek Pierce scenes, because I must admit, Derek Pierce is not one of my favourite male performers. He does tend towards the more aggressive, more violent end of the spectrum, which is not to my taste. And that is borne out in this rough scene. I mean, because... Yes, Sophie Capel has signed up for this, but she is not prepared to what is happening to her. And, yeah, she's very uncomfortable, but is eventually persuaded, arguably coerced, into finishing the scene by these three men around her. And, yeah, that's that's a, a very uncomfortable sequence. But, you know, seeing the contrast between a female-directed scene which is a full-out BDSM scene. It's a Shibari rope bondage scene. And yet, Sophie Capel has a good enough time that she wants to do more of it. And then there's you know two guys essentially raping her on screen. Yes, she signed up for it. Yes, she signed all the forms. But she's being raped on screen and is clearly uncomfortable, yet is being coerced to do it. And these are the things that she feels she must do in order to become a speaker girl in order to get to the top of the industry. And that includes stabbing her best friend in the back. And once you reach the top of the, the industry, whatever industry it is in, and this just happens to be the porn industry, when you have reached that peak, was it worth it? I mean, that's ultimately the question. I mean, you've scratched, you've clawed, you've done things you are uncomfortable with, you've done things you're even ashamed of but you have made it to the top. But was it worth it? And that's the, the really fascinating thing. I mean, and it's a very basic standard narrative. We've seen this kind of thing before. I mean, it's a variation on All About Eve, for example, a variation on Whiplash, for example. And there's, I'm sure if I sat down and thought about it, I could come up with dozens of these Be Careful What You Wish For style narratives. At the end of the day, this is a very, very basic, very standard narrative of a girl losing her soul in the pursuit of her dreams. And when she achieves her dreams, the question is, was it worth it? And there's also discussions of the porn industry itself. I mean, one of the things that 
Revika Roosler slash Zelda Morrison helps Sophia Capel with is her social media presence and tries to get more fans and more profile that way. And, I mean, that does seem to be what Zelda Morrison is doing nowadays. She doesn't seem to have worked for an actual porn company for about six years, but she does seem to do a lot of stuff online for whatever things have cropped up in the wake of OnlyFans removing porn. There does seem to be a lot of self-run, self-shot stuff out there, and Zelda Morrison seems to be one of the people doing that. So fair play to her. I mean, if she's happy, she's making money, fair play to her. And that is also part of this. It's the experience of the social media age rather than just, you know, being in a warehouse in the San Fernando Valley or wherever it happens to be. And yeah, it's, it's well shot. It's got lots of, really good performances. I mean, some of these porn stars are actually very good actors. I particularly want to give a shout out to Evelyn Clare, who is kind of sort of the antagonist of this film. I mean, she's already a Spiegler girl and is so far above this newbie girl from Sweden, you know, instantly dismissive, all that kind of stuff. She's kind of a bitch. But it feels like that's that's a performance. And yeah, I think as an acting performance, Evelyn Clare is very good. I mean, I've actually been impressed with her acting, even in porn scenes. I remember seeing there was a sequence of parodies that one porn company put out that was a parody of France. And Evelyn Clare played Monica. And I was actually rather impressed with her performance then. So yeah, some of these performers actually have some good acting chops. And the fact that Zelda Morrison deliberately credited herself in this movie as her real name, or I presume it's her real name, Revika Roosler, and she was actually nominated for an Independent Spirit Award in the States for Best Supporting Actress in this film. So, yeah, a porn star has an Independent Spirit nomination. But, yeah, it's... It's fascinating, but it is the kind of narrative we've seen before of be careful what you wish for, the price of fame, all that kind of stuff. It just so happens that this one's in the porn industry. But if you can cope with the explicit content, and honestly, this one wasn't as explicit as I expected it to be, but it's still pretty out there for a mainstream film, which is probably why it's taken 18 months to get here. But yeah, it's available through Mubi, and it's also available on some streaming platforms, but not all. It's not available through Google Play, but I have seen it on iTunes and Sky Cinema. So if you look about for it, you probably will be able to find it. But however you do find it, Pleasure is available through some streaming platforms. And for me, it is a fascinating and pretty high meh. Coming attractions. It's a pretty slow week at the cinema this week, but yet again, I've managed to add so many things to my to-watch list. The big release of the week is the adaptation of the enormously successful novel Where the Crawdads Sing. 
apparently where the crawdads sing is one of the best selling books ever i guess if you get into the right book clubs then that's what happens so inevitably there was going to be a film adaptation and it stars daisy edgar jones as a young woman who grows up in the swamps of north carolina and as she grows up eventually she turns into an attractive young woman so the local boys want to get close to her and when one of them dies naturally the outsider weirdo who lives in the swamp is blamed so yeah could be interesting although the reviews i've been seeing for weather crawdessing have not been good so that's actually made me even more curious and yeah with that and love and thunder still in the cinemas there's not very much else out to be released cinematically the only other cinematic trip i want to make this week is to a tiny horror film called she will which is the debut feature for writer-director charlotte colbert or possibly colbert i think she's english but it could go either way but yes it stars alice Kriege as a fading superstar actress who has retreated to the Scottish Highlands to recover from a double mastectomy. And whilst in this retreat, strange things start happening, and she realises she can start taking revenge on people in her dreams. Or possibly that's what's going on, it seems to be anyway. And these people include her old director, Malcolm McDowell. So... Yes, I'm certainly intrigued by She Will, the only other cinematic trip I'm going to make this week. There is another film being released onto Sky Cinema. This one is an animated feature called Paws of Fury, The Legend of Frank, which looks like a rather cheesy CG animated film about a dog learning kung fu or ninjas or something apparently the original title was blazing samurai and apparently there's quite a bit of mel brooks in there so maybe it'll be good but yeah i could just watch it on my skybox so why not check out the cheesy animated feature pause of fury the legend of frank much more high profile as far as the animated features go is a film called rumble which is an animated feature about a young girl who wants to train monsters in a wrestling contest. Basically, it's like professional wrestling, only they're done with gigantic monsters. And I don't know how long this film has been in production. I don't know how long it's been ready, but I've been seeing posters for this film, Rumble, up in the Odeon Cinema for literally years. But now it's being released onto Paramount Plus. And since I have Paramount Plus attached to my Sky Cinema package, I can watch Rumble, the 3D CG style animated feature from Paramount. Added to the streaming list on generic streaming platforms is a film called Language Lessons, which is another one of those films that was shot during the pandemic and is basically two people over Zoom, or possibly three. It's written and stars Mark Duplass, who is one of my favourite filmmakers out there, 
and is directed by and stars Natalie Morales, who I believe is based in Costa Rica, or at least the character in the film is based in Costa Rica, as Mark Duplass's husband as the pandemic starts. Or I think it's set during the pandemic. I mean, it's all over Zoom anyway. But Mark Duplass's husband randomly signs him up for Spanish lessons over Zoom, held by Natalie Morales. And this long-distance connection, the friendship, platonic friendship, develops. And yeah, that, that sounds like it might be intriguing. Certainly given the involvement of Mark Duplass, who, as I said, is one of my favourite people out there. Released onto Disney Plus, we have a revisionist swashbuckler, The Princess. Not to be confused with The Princess Diana documentary, which I saw a couple of weeks ago, but yet another film called The Princess, released within a very short time of each other. This one is a fantasy movie starring Joey King as a princess who is scheduled to have an arranged marriage, but when she realises that the guy she's supposed to be marrying is an abusive, misogynistic bastard, she says, no thanks, runs off and starts swashing buckles. So, yeah, that sounds like it could be quite fun. And I do want to check out The Princess on Disney+. Plus. Released through Amazon Prime, there's a new movie called Anything's Possible which is directed by Billy Porter, the breakout star of the drag ball TV show Pose. This film talks about the relationship between a trans high school girl and her relationship with a boy in her class. That seems to be all it is. I mean, a trans girl in high school and trying to live her life and maybe data boy so yeah could be rather simple and, and basically any trans exposure is good exposure so i'm intrigued particularly since it's directed by billy porter and that is available on amazon prime and it's called anything's possible and that has been added to the list very very little on netflix this week there's only a couple of things I'm vaguely interested in and honestly not very interested in. There's a Spanish film called Live is Life, which is set in 1985. It's basically the summer it all changed, one final hurrah kind of thing. As a group of teenage friends, I think they're about 15 years old, realise that this is the last time they're all going to be together. So in order to prevent this happening... They go off on a journey together in search of a mythical flower which will grant any wish they want. And they all want to stay together. I mean, basically it sounds like a Spanish version of Stand By Me, only set in 1985. So, yeah, it could be interesting. I mean, I'll add it to the list, but I probably won't get around to it for a while. And there's also an Egyptian film which has been released onto Netflix, called The Crime, which is an awfully generic title. This is one of those films that they've just dumped onto Netflix with absolutely no fanfare, so I haven't actually seen a trailer for this with subtitles, but I'm intrigued nonetheless because the plot line sounds intriguing. 
it looks like a mental patient who's been in an asylum for years escapes and as somebody investigates this escape they realize that all is not as it seems and the reason this guy was put in the asylum in the first place probably has something to do with some murders back in the day and maybe the wrong man got done for it or something along those i I mean like i said i vaguely read the synopsis but it looks intriguing so i think i will add the crime to the list even if it is a very unhelpfully generic title I'm going to have to go to Bristol this week in order to watch She Will at the Watershed, and my choice for the movie I'm going to watch whilst I'm over there is the French version, the French new version of Dangerous Liaisons, set in a high school in Biarritz. I still really am interested in the new version of Persuasion, which has shown up on Netflix, but that's the kind of thing I need to check with my mother and brother whether they want to watch it with me or not. There's also an animated feature, Chicken Hair and the Hamster of Darkness, which honestly is one of the best titles I've come across this year. There's also the South African film, Silverton Siege. And my highest priority on the documentaries on Netflix is Our Father, about the fertility doctor who inseminated dozens of his female patients. So, yeah, that's uh, disturbing. I still want to check out the prestige stuff on Shudder.com the Laotian film The Long Walk and the prestige British horror movie A Banquet. Actually, next week there's another very high-profile thing coming out on Shudder, which looks absolutely fascinating. I still want to check out the erotic thriller on Amazon Prime Deep Water and also the film that's only just shown up onto Amazon Prime, the weepy Don't Make Me Go which I've realised it's actually directed by Hannah Marks, who is a person I actually rather respect. I mean, she's very young and yet has done a lot of really interesting stuff. So, yeah, she's directing that. Uh, John Cho is a dying father taking his teenage daughter on a road trip and giving her life lessons along the way. So, yeah, that could be fun. And I'm still morbidly fascinated by Chippendale's Rescue Rangers, available through Disney+. Plus. I just can't believe that got made and I'm fascinated to see it. So yeah, that remains on the list. Before I leave you, there was one yay in this particular episode and it's one that really surprises me because the hit rate when I watch these kinds of micro-budget tiny films is so, so low, but every now and again, you do find a gem. And the sympathy card is definitely a gem. I think it was adorable, it was earnest, it has a a right balance of melancholy and awkwardness. I mean, it is a tragic situation if you're a dying woman wanting her wife to be happy after she's gone and doing rather extreme and extravagant things in order to make that happen. So, well acted all around. I mean, yes, very low budget, but charming. I mean, it has this homemade feel to it that I really appreciate. And for me, The Sympathy Card, available through streaming platforms, is a definite yay. I really, really did enjoy it. And that is the one yay on this particular episode. So all that remains for me to say is this has been Yay, Nay or Mare, presented by the Raw Footage Podcast. I've been host Colin Gaisley, coming to you from Bath in the southwest of England. Email is rawfootagepodcast at gmail.com or you can tweet me at rawfootagepod. 
and I'll see you next time where I shine a light on cinema, both obvious and obscure.